Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Future. I am your host, Sarah Durvin. And I am also your host, Maeve McCrossan. On this podcast, we discuss the history of absolutely everything, from the smallest objects to the largest movements. And exactly why these things are relevant to us today. Every week we have two stories. One of us discusses a small piece of history in a short and sweet nutshell, and the other delves into a chunky story exploring a larger historical topic. And best of all, neither of us knows which topic the other will talk about. So if you liked history class in school, this is probably the podcast for you. But if you like the two class clowns running commentary of those classes, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Welcome to Behind the Future. Before we begin this week's episode, if you haven't had a look at our socials or well, I don't know what else, unless you made a poster, maybe or I don't know. I don't know where a poster hanging at my house. The (laughs) the news bulletin. Um, Maeve Anne and I have made the sad but like productive decision, I think, to end the the podcast. So unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, this today will be the last history episode or last regular episode. And then next week, we're going to have a special for you. We're going to have a history of behind the future special. So I'm extremely excited about that. No, we just decided to do it because we're perfect at this now. Like, yeah, is this the long and the short of it? Like, okay, we're we not need like to master new it, things. <laughs> Well, we started the project to see if we could just master these skills, like these podcasting skills, research skills as well. That was something I, I mean, I know I did it in college, but realistically, how much did I actually do it in college? Um, like researching skills, podcasting skills. And we feel like we're, we're at the point that we're not perfect at them yet, but we, we can move on to new projects. Yeah. Like, um, there's only so much you can do. Well, you, you can do a lot. Like, I feel like we've done a lot with the podcast, but Both Maeve-Anne and I have career choices to make and we're currently trying different avenues and and different skills and we're looking to to kind of further up time basically to do those things. So unfortunately the podcast is going to come to an end. We had a year, we had a good run. (laughs) We We had a really, like I'm, this is still going to be on my CV. Forever. Oh yeah, like, and, and honestly, there's so many episodes. Like we did one almost every week. I think we only took a break like three times. Yeah, and uh, so there's a bank of them. Like you can, I don't think this is going to sadden anyone really, unless you've literally no. been listening week to week, which I doubt anyone has. <laughs> I'm really impressed if you have. Please reach out. But um, we are sorry to anyone who maybe is a bit disappointed. You will get over it. Trust me. <laughs> you will there's more things to be disappointed about it It was a difficult decision because we both enjoy it so much we enjoy working yeah, together so much and I really love talking to people about it and interacting and people getting in touch with us and like the interaction we've had with other people the opportunities that have come up to collaborate with people we're really lucky that that we got to do all this I do think though and like this does kind of make me sad but I do think if there was just more hours in the day we would I wouldn't have yeah I so I, I don't mind saying I really want to do a course on like childcare and education and I just want to have that like under my belt as soon as possible and the only reason 
we couldn't do both is just because of time. Like this, it takes yeah. up quite a bit of time. And even, I think some people think that maybe all we do is just research and then record. But even that takes up like yeah. quite a lot of time for me. Oh my God, yes. Like yeah, way it, more than I it's thought. It's so time consuming. And I also, I, I too want to kind of develop more in my graphic design, in my visual design. Mm. And I really want to get into like 3D animation and 3D design. And I cannot do all as well. Like I need to also invest yeah. in in that stuff. Like we said earlier, a podcast can only go so far, like editing audio. I feel like I can't learn anymore uh, uh, and social yeah. media and stuff like that. We have kind of we've kind of utilized every skill we can and that's what we set out to do at the beginning was to like create mm-hmm. something together learn a lot from it and we have and this may not be the last project Mayvan and I work on together uh we are very did interested you might did you <laughs> say this might not be Sarah take that back I'm hinting, Mayvan. I'm trying to be discreet. <laughs> and we felt it was right to end it on the one year mark. So next yeah. week, we're going to talk about the history of Behind the Future, how we started, how we got on. We'll go into so much detail. Maybe you want to start a podcast. You want some tips. We're going to be answering all of your questions that you asked us in the previous weeks and um, we've been collecting them all up whether you ask them on twitter or instagram we're gonna answer them next week in our episode so if you ever wanted to know anything about Mayvan and i now is the time to <laughs> now is the time to seek your answer so um yeah i'm really looking forward to it. and we'll be having wine as well this the best yes. <laughs> to celebrate the I'm send off. Sorry for the slurping, but we're gonna have ASMR. <laughs> Should we dive into the last history stories, my van? So as I contemplated any of the histories I didn't get to cover for whatever reason, this one stuck out to me. The history that I wanted to cover for ages was the history of the first PC virus. Oh my god, relevant. Oh, that's true for the HSE. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, sorry, HSE. So anybody who does not know what a computer virus is, it's a type of computer program that replicates itself by modifying other computer programs by inserting its own code. So computer viruses generally need a host program. So something to latch onto, which makes complete sense. The virus writes its code into that program and then when the program runs the written virus program is kind of like played first if that makes sense executed first and then the infection is what causes the damage literally the exact same as as human viruses i've never thought of it that way but exact same so say and this is how and please if there's any computer smart people listening and you're like what is she on about correct me i'd be so i mean i won't be here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll end the podcast. Um, no, You're but, just going to have to listen and suffer <laughs> This is how I'm kind of imagining it, right? So if you imagine a computer as a DVD And I don't know why you would But imagine a computer as a DVD And the virus is like a scene in that DVD A scene in the movie And a virus that has infected that DVD is the very first scene of the movie. Like it inserts itself right at the start. When the DVD is played, the virus plays first. The virus is like, hello. And then it just makes the DVD bad. The very first computer virus was called Brain. 
Now, this was the first PC computer virus. There was a computer virus in the 70s, but this that was... Do you remember those servers that we talked about when I talked about the history of email? Oh, yeah. Um, that's what that infected, which I think is completely different. So this is technically not mm. the first virus, but it's the first PC virus. Um, so Brain was a computer virus that was released in its first form, because there was a couple of them, in uh, January of 1986. It is said to be the first virus that was ever released on the IBM personal computer, which um, was basically like you would imagine like an old 80s personal computer to look like. The virus was written by Amjad and Basit Farooq Alvi. They lived in Lahore, Pakistan. They had a company called Brain Limited. This was a well-known and really successful company at the time. They were a programming company. So they they knew what they were doing. In the mid 80s, the company higher ups were getting a little bit concerned about their own safety, like their own IT systems safety. So these particular brothers, Amjad and Basit, were really interested in Microsoft Disk Operating Systems, also known as MS-DOS. MS-DOS was the program that allowed the user of the computer to navigate, open or like change files on their computer. Now, this was done on a command line instead of a GUI, like Windows. So I looked into that a little bit more. A GUI is what you look at on your screen. It's all all the icons. It's all the, like, it looks really, really good, right? But if you compare that to, um, like, imagine a computer from the 80s where it's just like a black background and all that white writing. Mm. MS That that was MS-DOS, or that was like a version of that kind of... Um, software so it wasn't very user friendly like you had to be re- you really had to understand what you were doing to use oh, it yeah. and then what we have now is called graphical user interface it's mm. a computer program that enables a person to communicate with a computer through the use of symbols visual metaphors and pointing devices oh my god that- i'm getting i'm getting such like this was in my like one of my exams for college for my masters we was all it? we had to you know, we had to learn about these cuz it's a big part I'm of sure um, it did though of UX, it's a big, big part of user experience. Mm. I think it's something we take for granted. The brothers said in later interviews, after this all had happened, that they never meant for their virus to cause any harm to computers. They literally just wanted to learn more about MS-DOS and they called their virus a friendly benign virus because it actually wasn't written to erase or do any damage whatsoever. It sounds to me like this was a project that they were just fucking around with. Right? Nice. Just to be plain and simple about it. The virus spread via floppy disks. <laughs> Isn't that so cute? Back. So, just floppy disks. It never got onto the internet. So floppy disks have what are called boot sectors. And as far as I can gather, this boot sector is what makes the floppy disk do what it's meant to do. It allows the floppy disk to show the files that are on the disk. And to play the game that's on the disc or whatever. So this is the part of the floppy disk where brain, the virus, lived or was written into. So you'd put an infected floppy disk into a computer. Brain would make a copy of the boot sector onto the computer. So it would it would just replicate what was on the floppy disk, the bad kind of infected part, replicate it onto the computer, and then they'd mark that floppy disk's boot sector as bad so that the disk was unusable. Apparently that's like the term. That was really common in floppy disks though. I don't know if you ever used a floppy disk. Never used, but I remember them being around. I was the child of a computer technician and we had floppy disks 
flopping around everywhere like they were everywhere and I used them for a lot which sounds really really weird and it makes me sound really old but I just think it's because we were around that but anyway that was really common though and I remember like floppy disks were very unstable but the fact that the that brain would mark the floppy disks boot sector as bad wasn't really an alarm bell because of how often that would happen on normal floppy disks so the floppy disk drive was then infected in the computer and then any floppy disk that went into the computer after that would be infected. The virus was pretty undetectable for, like, say me and you at that time, just, like, hanging out on our computers. We would never notice it, I don't think. But if you looked at the virus's boot sector using this particular program, like, techie people would, um, it gave you a little message. And the message said, Welcome to the dungeon. It gave the company's name, um, it gave the company's address, like physical address, phone number. And then at the end, it said, beware of this virus. Contact us for vaccination. <laughs> so these guys, like, they really, this, you can tell, they did not mean to like trick people and they didn't mean to like. I can imagine hair. people opening their laptop and being like, what the hell? Though? <laughs> What's going on? But this as well, remember, this was the first time this had ever happened. Oh, yeah. Another thing that the that brain would do it would change the name of the floppy drive to brain with a little copyright symbol so that was another thing where people would realize that they had been infected brain would like hide on computers so again if you had a computer that was infected and you weren't really like hugely technical or you weren't looking for it it was pretty difficult to know that it was infected the only thing it would do to the computer was slow down the floppy disk drive again it like it didn't cause any damage, it didn't erase data, it didn't steal data, it didn't do anything like that. For the next year or so, the brothers were extremely surprised to find that the virus had spread as far as the UK, the US and beyond. Like it had literally gone all around the world. And remember, this physically had to spread through floppy disks. Oh, that's gas. That had to have been a physical chain of people using floppy disks. People were calling the number to get their virus taken off their computers but they were like screaming down the phone at these two brothers like apparently they were inundated with all of these really upset people and then the two brothers had to be like we didn't think it was gonna you know like we really didn't think it was gonna reach the US some estimates suggest that between 1986 and 1989 the virus got to more than 100,000 computers worldwide there was also a huge outbreak of it there was 10,000 computers at Washington DC's Georgetown University had brain on their computer. I mean, once it hit like Georgetown University, they got quickly, you know, there was they quickly mm. figured out how to solve it. It the simplest way to destroy the virus was just to rewrite the boot sector so that it would just get rid of the code. Apparently that was like pretty easy to do. Really interestingly though, there was another virus called Denzuko that was literally written specifically to find and destroy the brain virus. <laughs> Denzuko was written in Indonesia. It was exactly the same. It was another, what they called a boot sector virus. And they wrote it in 1988. It seeks out and destroys the brain virus. And this was one of the first nematodes. Exactly what, I mean, it's just a virus designed to destroy another virus. Uh, this was one of the first nematodes ever written as well. So brain made history as did Denzuko. The brothers literally just went, oops. They've made official statements, stances, saying that they're completely against the, the writing and creation of computer viruses. 
And their software business is still thriving. Ah, good on them. So funny that you decided to do a virus, because I also decided to research a virus. We're really, really relevant to this this episode, because what I decided to research was also on my list. I wanted to finish on something I was really curious about. I did the Syrian Civil War, didn't I? Yeah, Syrian Civil War, I think, was my Mm. first chunky. So my final one is just as interesting. I'm going to be doing the HIV epidemic. Ooh. Yeah. Because I I know about it. I know what HIV is. I know what AIDS is. But I was like, where did it start? Can we trace it back to someone or some group of people? And how did it spread? And, and how did it manifest? And how it affected the population? For anyone who is unaware of HIV, I'm going to give you a bit of background. The human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, is the virus that can lead to acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or AIDS. HIV, the virus, attacks a number of T cells, which, as we know from secondary school biology, are white blood cells oh, yeah. in the body. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I mean, I didn't I'm look that up after boat. I saw it. Everybody, <laughs> I know <that. laughs> This is definitely going to be one of those science history ones where I'm like, okay, I I know the timeline, but the details, <laughs> we will we'll need listeners' input. Margaret, get on this. <laughs> <laughs> so when these T cells are attacked, it leaves HIV positive people very vulnerable to infections, dangerous infections that can unfortunately lead to death if untreated. HIV can spread through bodily fluids. I must emphasize that because even I, looking this up, even though it's one of the most profound features of HIV is that it doesn't travel airborne. That was one of the things, Mm. even when research came out, people were still so scared of. But it only spreads through bodily fluids and is transmissible during sex, when breastfeeding or sharing a drug needle. The epidemic resulting from this virus occurred mainly in the US in the 1980s and then spread throughout the world. And it it is still a prevalent disease today, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. When you say bodily fluids, is that spit as well? No, it has to be blood, basically. Blood or breast, Uh, breastfeeding as well. Or pregnant women can give it to their babies but their bloodstream is connected Same. yeah similarly i think with the breastfeeding it's somehow your blood is connected to it although i'm not a lactation expert (laughs) anyone out there you're not (laughs) um so it is widely believed that HIV actually originated from the Democratic Republic of Congo around 1920, when wow. HIV crossed species from chimpanzees to humans. How? No, I take it back. I don't know. We we don't know how, but it is groups of people living in the Congo who live closely with chimpanzees. However, the number of people infected between this time and the, the 1980s is unknown. We, it's very vague. There's not a lot of research, even though there was cases throughout this time. Definitely. 
But the reason being, and I'll go into more detail on this, is basically because it is so hard and was so hard for researchers and doctors to even conceptualize HIV because the symptoms are so they take so long to show up and they're so like there there's fatigue there's depression it's it's linked to so many other things it's not unique in any way the symptoms the first recorded case of what was suspected to be HIV was in a report published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on June 5th 1981 the report described five cases of a rare type of pneumonia called pneumocystis carinii pneumonia PCP is what it's called for short which is an infection of the lungs. The patients were previously healthy, young, gay men located in LA, and not long after, similar cases began to be reported to the CDC. So at the same time, there were reports of 41 homosexual men in New York and California with an unusually aggressive cancer named Kaposi's sacroma. And in December 1981, the first cases of PCP were reported in people who inject drugs. By the end of the year, 270 homosexual men reported cases of severe immune deficiency, of which 121 had died. So from what I gathered from researching all of this was researchers and doctors in the CDC noticed a certain demographic resulting from the same diseases and they were kind of like hi this is very unusual that the exact same demographics kept coming up with the same unusual rare diseases is it because of this like literally just what you're talking about where they notice this trend is or is there like is there a reason why homosexual intercourse would make it more likely for them to catch it or is it just because in the 80s in San Francisco it was a time of like sexual liberation and Mm. perhaps people were I mean I mean this with absolutely no disrespect like this was just a time where people felt comfortable to like perhaps multiple partners yeah it is no all of your your reasons that you gave are exactly your answer like there was a lot of gay liberation around this time particularly in these areas where the disease was resulting the most like San Francisco New York California it was the first time young gay men could go out and you know experience they were still experiencing discrimination they still experience it today but they they were a lot less of it a lot less of it was occurring than previously in the 60s and that On July 16th, 1982, a CDC report featured three cases of PCP presented in heterosexual hemophilic men, revealing that this new virus may not only target gay men. A few months later, the CDC released the first definition of AIDS, which is, quote, a disease at least moderately predictive of a defect in cell mediated immunity occurring in a person with no known cause for diminished resistance to that disease, unquote. Not long after this, AIDS cases began being reported in Europe and Uganda, where it was known as Slim Jim in Uganda because you apparently lost a load of weight. When you, when you got the disease. Oh, it's kind of cruel. <laughs> yeah, I know who came up with that. That's not Slim a cute Jim. name. Jeez. 
By this point, a number of AIDS-specific organizations had been set up, for example, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and the Terence Higgins Trust in the UK. In January 1983, the CDC recorded the first two female patients. They were partners with HIV-positive men, suggesting the sexual transmission of the disease. So they hadn't figured it out that it could be sexual yet? Yeah, well, this would be the point, yeah, that they would. The more cases that came out, the more data they could gather on this because it was so like they had no idea. Like the coronavirus, the similar yeah. similar things were done, similar actions were taken. The WHO get involved and start monitoring cases, things like that. And, and it is, we're kind of living through a similar thing now where it's like, okay, the more cases come out, the more data we have, the more we can see how this virus works how it mutates, how we can tackle it, things like that. In May of the same year, so 1983, researchers at the Pasteur Institute in France began uncovering the cause behind the new illness. They reported a new retrovirus, and a retrovirus is a virus that uses RNA as genetic material, called lymphadenopathy-associated virus, or LAV, LAV, which later was renamed as Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, is the advanced stage of the infection caused by HIV. So some of these common infections that are associated with AIDS and can often lead to the death of a patient are salmonella, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. Things easily treated nowadays, but and easily treated then, but this virus left it wide open for you to succumb to these diseases. The problem doctors, patients, and researchers faced at this stage was that the symptoms, as I mentioned earlier, of the virus were not exclusive to AIDS and therefore are difficult to detect early on. For example, as I mentioned, weight loss, fatigue, memory loss, and depression. I suffer from three of those things consistently in my life. Oh, yeah. Uh, the weight loss being the one that I don't. <laughs> Who is she? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but like, if you have those symptoms, you would not think, oh, a new virus that takes my T cells. You would just think you're tired, you're down, you're forgetful. Like, I would, anyways. I wouldn't go to a doctor for any of those things, quite frankly, which is really scary to think of. So therefore, a test is necessary to officially diagnose the virus. You must be tested. You will not officially find out otherwise. Throughout the rest of 1983, more research would reveal the presence of AIDS in children and that the virus cannot be transmitted through casual contact, food, water, air or surfaces. The CDC also published their first set of guidelines for healthcare workers to ensure prevention of transmission. The WHO, the World Health Organization, held its first meeting in November to assess the global situation and begin its surveillance. So funny how we're living through something similar right now. Throughout the 1980s, the data showed that this virus was present in certain demographics more than others. This I found baffling why it targets certain demographic than others and then when you think of the sociology behind it you kind of understand why 
So bisexual or homosexual men counted for 69% of all new HIV diagnoses in the US at this point. Then heterosexuals accounting for 24% and injection drug users at 7%. African-Americans accounted for 42% of newly affected cases and Hispanics accounted for 27% of the HIV positive. Overall, those most vulnerable to the disease were referred to as the four H's. Homosexuals, heroin addicts, hemophiliacs, and Haitian immigrants. By the end of 1984, there had been 7,699 AIDS cases with 3,665 related deaths in the US and 762 cases reported in Europe. Ryan White was a teenager from Indiana in the USA who acquired AIDS through contaminated blood products used to treat his hemophilia. And he was banned from his school because of this. Because of the stigma surrounding this. Like, did they think he was infectious? Uh, there was so much stigma tied to HIV. Like, it could have been because it was infectious. They could have suspected that he was homosexual. A, a oh, lot of things went thing. around America now that was. And it was very, um, it was touching. I, I watched a lot of interviews from people both who have HIV, who contracted HIV recently and who contracted it back in like the 80s. The first thing they talk about, and I was kind of listening to it kind of for the symptoms, how are they feeling, how are they dealing with it? And they do discuss that. But the most of the interviews, the conversation surrounded the stigma that they experienced and the discrimination they experienced because they live with this virus. Because it was viewed as dirty, you know, your yeah. blood was contaminated. There were so many things that just are the wildest things to me. It's not like anyone asked for this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And on October 2nd as well, the actor Rock, Rock Hudson, do you know him? Rock Hudson? Uh, no. He was a very so. famous actor. And no. he died from AIDS, which, no. and he was like the first high profile fatality. So it started to bring a bit of light to the situation a lot. And he left $250,000 to set up the American Foundation for AIDS Research, or AMFAR. These situations allowed for the subject of discrimination associated with the disease to enter public consciousness. Now, I don't mean to brag, but I wrote that last sentence completely myself. I remember being like, Sarah, are we going to write a book someday? <laughs> <laughs> and then I can't pronounce like scientific names. <laughs> Sorry. Get this. This was bizarre. I couldn't believe this. The 1987 book and the band played on by Randy Schiltz introduced the real life story about Patient Zero, the man who brought AIDS to the US. <gasps> Unbelievable, what? right? Yeah. Are they sh did how how did they find that person? Is it a person? Yeah. What? These are the questions I asked my van. And, and throughout my, my reading of it, I doubted everything. And you'd be correct too, to be fair. Oh. So while researching for his book, Schiltz came across the Cluster Study, which was published in the American Journal of Medicine. 
With this study, the CDC set out to draw the map between the cases of AIDS with a diagram showing the network of transmissions based on the study that Schultz had found. They soon traced back to Gaten Duga, a Canadian flight attendant. However, Schiltz had mistaken the letter O, which was marked by Duga's name, to identify his location rather than him being case number zero. So it was a letter O. I think it was because he was in California or something. I can't remember what the O stood for exactly, but it was to identify his location, not his number. But Schiltz wrote an entire book uh, about him and how he was patient zero and how he brought AIDS to America. Gaten also provided the researchers with a lot of information about his sexual history and the locations he was, then others in the study, because there was other patients mm. and, and people in the study. Hence why so many cases aligned with his, because he was he was an open book. He, he told them where he was. He told them the name of who he was with. But there's other people that were more shy or, or more private and didn't want to share that information of where they were and who they were with. Mm. In fact, Gaten was just one of many first cases of AIDS in the 1970s. And painting Gaten as the villain in his novel would make Schiltz's novel more appealing. And that's why he did it. That is so unnecessary. Mm. Yeah. I couldn't believe it though. I was like, they they found the one man? Yeah. I was like, statistically, this does not make sense. No, there's no way. And did he find out that that was a, basically that his entire fucking book was written because of an error on his part did he find that out before or after it was published released oh i think after i think after because oh, he he, he made up this story about how gaten or, or his character in the book went around sleeping with a lot of people and the and and gaten himself does admit that he did do that but in the book he's portrayed as sleeping around and and when he even knows that he has the virus he continues to sleep around spreading it and he paints him as a real villain whereas Gaten's real story is more that like he was diagnosed with AIDS he 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 still went about his life you know just being a regular guy so by December 1987 71,751 cases of AIDS had been reported to the WHO with 42,022 of these in the USA. The WHO estimated that 5 to 10 million people were living with HIV worldwide at this time. Wow. And throughout the late 1980s and 1990s, more drugs were being approved to treat patients with AIDS as further research continued. So then to bring up to, I suppose, modern history... In June 1995, the FDA approved the first protease inhibitor beginning a new era of highly active antiretroviral treatment called HART, H-A-A-R-T. Once incorporated into clinical practice, HART brought about an immediate decline of between 60% and 80% in rates of AIDS-related deaths and hospitalization in those countries which could afford it. In 1999, the World Health Organization announced that AIDS was the fourth biggest cause of death worldwide and number one killer in Africa. 
an estimated 33 million people were living with HIV and 14 million people had died from AIDS since the start of the epidemic. A major problem for those fighting AIDS throughout its prevalence would be the price of treatment and the lack of funding. So to combat this, in June 2001, the United Nations General Assembly called for the creation of a global fund to support efforts by countries and organisations to combat the spread of HIV through prevention, treatment and care, including buying medication. So where are we now with this virus? Modern medicine has changed the once fatal disease to now becoming a chronic illness. It cannot be cured. We still don't have a cure for AIDS, but it can be managed through regular use of antiretroviral drugs. In 2017, for the first time ever, more than half of the global population living with HIV are receiving antiviral treatment, a record of 19.5 million people. In 2018, it was revealed that someone with HIV who is diagnosed and treated early can live as long as someone without HIV. Yay. Yeah. Oh my God. This this whole case study is a test to modern medicine. I suppose so is the yeah. coronavirus. Do you know I actually read... This is so annoying of me to say. I read somewhere that because COVID was... COVID was like a new virus, but it wasn't that new. Like... There had been, say, like versions of COVID, quote unquote, come out before. So like SARS COVID or something. So yeah. basically. There like was, yeah, there's a ton of research, ton of research so on COVID things. viruses. Yeah. And they just, so, because everyone says, oh my God, these vaccines were so rushed. Um, apparently they weren't. Apparently these vaccines that we're using have been technically in development for like 10 years. I read on LinkedIn and I wish I remembered this woman's name. If I do, I'll put it on the socials this week or if I come across the article. Yeah. But she was studying Corona. I don't know was it was a coronaviruses, but it was definitely the diseases that we contract from animals and, you know, mm. cross contamination with animals and how mutation happens in humans from diseases from animals. Her research kept getting denied by universities. No one would fund her. No one would uh, give her the time of day. And now her research is being used behind these some of these vaccines. Some of the things she, she discovered. She'd better be a millionaire. She'd better be a millionaire. I'm going to... I hope so. Beat I someone up. So. In 2019, about 38 million people are estimated to be living with AIDS across the globe. During the same year... 690,000 people died from AIDS, with sub-Saharan Africa being the worst affected country. And that's the history of HIV, the HIV epidemic. That has, like I hasten to say it has like a happy ending, but it has at least a hopeful ending. Yeah, I think, I think hopefully with the, with the way modern medicine is going I can definitely, I would have hope that a cure for this is on the horizon. Yeah. I reckon in our lifetime, there could be a, I hope so. a cure for this. Viruses really are, now that we're talking about viruses, you talked about a virus for technology and viruses can really affect humans. Viruses are our weakness, our, our society's weakness, because everything can get affected by a virus. Everything. All living things mm. can get affected by virus. And not only that, but now our AI 
can also get infected by viruses. Do you believe that zombies will happen? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't like zombies and I don't like zombie movies and I don't like zombie themed anything. I don't know why I have such a distaste for them, but it's just, do you know what it is? Oh, I know what it is, my man. Sorry, I just had a light bulb moment. (laughs) I hate slow walkers. I hate them. I hate when people are walking so slow that I cannot walk around them. And that's, I think, why I hate zombies because it's just walking that slow irks me. I've watched my fair share of zombie entertainment, right? Because I think it's an interesting concept. It's also very far removed from reality. So I'm not going to like, like be afraid that a zombie's under my bed. You know what I mean? So it's like the scary stuff that I can watch and actually really enjoy. But I believe that the zombies from The Walking Dead, because every like movie, series, everything, they have their own rules when it comes to zombies. Like their own biological rules oh, yeah. of what would happen. So I watched the zombie movie the last day where all of the zombies were like really fast. Like they ran really, really fast. They were really strong. They knew how to like open doors, that kind of thing. I don't think that's, I don't think that's realistic. Okay. I know zombies aren't, but I don't think that's realistic. <laughs> if a zombie was to exist, it would not be able to run. It would not be like, it would not have huge force. It would not be able to fire a gun. It would not be able to do all those things. But in the Walking Dead universe, zombies are slow. They're very weak. They've forgotten a lot of what they know. So they can't like really open doors very well. They can't climb up ladders very well. They, oh, they remember some of their old routines. So like zombies will like go back to their house. Like they won't know about their house, but they'll like go back to their house. So (laughs) unrealistic. I think that's so realistic though. I think like, and they, you know, they can't tell that you're alive if you smell like a dead person or like, you know, they... They can't like just sniff out fresh blood like you. I don't know. What I'm trying to say is, Sarah, you're wrong for not enjoying zombies. And I don't know. I think I'm entitled to my opinion on this. I think zombies exist. I think some people I know are zombies that you could just literally, they're dead. They're just like dead inside. They're not with it at all. They're so stupid. <laughs> 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 Why are you being so mean to Donald Trump? <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> Literally, zombies are real. Like, there's no need to be making up movies or fantasies about them. I know a few zombies. Don't you worry, my bad. I like zombies. I'm not. I'm not a fan now, but I won't judge you. And Thank you. we're about to end our. Should I even plug the socials? Yeah, go on. Yeah, That's <laughs> go follow us for to look back on all our great work and to support yeah. the podcast, which is now over at Behind the Future Pod on Instagram and Future underscore Behind on Twitter. That is our two last history stories. But we do have an episode. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're acting like we don't have an episode next week. We do have an episode next week. It's going to be amazing. We We're going to get drunk. Well, Sarah, we're gonna I can't get speak drunk. for you, but we're I gonna... can speak for myself. <laughs> we're going to answer some questions. We're going to play some drunk. bloopers. You're going to get some never before heard behind the scenes, behind the future content. We had some funny moments and we really want to share them with you. We find them funny anyways. So do not miss that episode. I'm actually, I'm also really looking forward to it. And a glass of wine on I'm a cheeky Tuesday to. night. I, I, I'm really looking cheeky forward to it. Tuesday. And we're going to have a 
little reminisce. So that's it. And yeah, please don't miss that episode. We're going to have a great time. And I, I know you will too. And remember. Don't forget. And I'll say it in a normal way. So if you get annoyed with me while you're editing, you can put this in. Don't forget. <laughs> Which version did you hear? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs>